Uh, let's have God's word now turn our attention to Matthew 11. We'll open up. Let's open up our, our Bibles to Matthew 11. It's awfully quiet here in this room. <laughs> you can pin drop silence. Uh, let's uh, turn to Matthew 11, verse 25, and we'll go down to verse 27. Let's all rise as we read God's word together. This is the reading of God's holy word. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, today, we will be starting a new short series on the topic of faith. Now, the goal of this series is threefold. First, the reason why we'll be discussing or talking about faith is to first dispel any misunderstandings that we might have about biblical faith. You know, I find faith to be one of the most misunderstood aspects of Christianity. Now, sometimes people get God wrong, sometimes they get the gospel wrong, but what I find is that most often, or more commonly, people get faith wrong. Maybe it's because there's a subjective nature or element to faith, but I find that people's understanding of Christian faith is grounded much more in personal experience or preferences rather than the Bible. You know, the biggest misunderstanding, I think, when it comes to faith uh, for modern Christians is equating faith with simply belief. So when, when asked, what does it mean to have faith people naturally respond, well, to have faith means that you believe in God. Well, um, faith isn't just believing in God. Remember, there's this passage in James where the apostle says, oh, so you believe in God. That's great. Because even the demons believe that. Even the demons believe that God exists. So what makes your faith any different? See, biblical faith encompasses belief. It includes belief, but biblical faith is much more than just belief. Another common misunderstanding that we find in today, uh, today's church is seeing faith as being something that's antithetical or opposed to things like reason, uh, doubt, even science. Remember, there's this line um, in, in the classic movie, Nacho Libre, where one of the wrestlers says this. He says, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. 
I, you know, I just quoted James so I could uh, quote a Jack Black movie. But, it, you know, that line, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, it actually expresses a very common thought in the world today that to have faith means you have to suspend reason. You have to discount science. And most importantly, there's this thought out there that if you have faith, it means you can't doubt. You know, through this, this series, what we'll do is we'll see that these things, um, they're, not, they're not the case. We'll dispel some of these misunderstandings. Faith and doubt often coexist. Faith and reason are not opposed to one another. And we'll talk about some of these things as we go along. Now, the second goal for this series on faith is to share the full scope of biblical faith. You see, faith, according to the Bible, is multifaceted, almost like a diamond. So the Bible, instead of giving this static definition uh, or dictionary definition on faith, instead, what the Bible does is it presents faith through different stories. It presents faith through different circumstances and, and teaches it in very different ways. And like a diamond... Depending on which facet you look at, you'll get different colors, different lighting, different emphases. So what we'll do is we'll spend about seven weeks going through different aspects of faith, of biblical faith, so that in the end, we can step back and see the entire thing. Finally, the third goal for this series is to present plainly the object of our faith. And that's Jesus Christ. The third and final goal is to present plainly the beauty, the glory, the trustworthiness of Jesus who is the object of our faith. In the end, you know, the goal for this series is not so that we can know more about faith. But the goal is so that we can know more about Jesus. The goal is not so that we can cherish more our faith, but the goal is so that we can cherish more of Jesus. So these are the three goals for the series that we have uh, planned for the next few weeks. And today, I'd like to begin this series by talking um, about faith as a gift, looking at faith as a gift. If you look at verse 25, this is what it says. Um, I have it up there. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You know, today's passage is one of those rare occasions where Jesus speaks to God. You see, most of the Bible is God speaking to us. He speaks to us through the apostles, through the prophets. He speaks to us through his Son. And, you know, a small portion of the Bible is man speaking to God right? We find that in the Psalms. But today, today's passage is God, the eternal Son, speaking with God, the Father. Further, if you look at what Luke says, Luke's account of this same uh, scene, the same conversation, Luke says this, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. So in this conversation that we have, uh, in Matthew 11 and Luke 10, you have the Father, you have the Son, 
and you have the Holy Spirit. This conversation, it's, it's the Trinity communicating to one another. I mean, have you ever wondered what conversation in the Godhead would be like? Did you ever think, like, what does God talk about? What, is the, what does the Son talk to, you know, about the Father? And what does the Father say to the Son? How is the Holy Spirit sort of related to all of this? Did you ever think, like, oh, man, what privilege would it be to listen to the Trinity communicate? You know, uh, in the musical uh, Hamilton, uh, there's a song uh, called The Room Where It Happened. It's one of my favorite songs in, in the entire musical. But in this song, The Room Where It Happened, it's sung by uh, Aaron Burr. He sings about this famous closed-door meeting between Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison. And in this closed-door meeting, they were able to settle major disagreements between two parties and move the country forward in a crucial, crucial time. Now, even today, no one actually knows what happened in that room that led to the Compromise of 1790. But in the musical, Aaron Burr, he candidly sings about his desire to be just a fly on the wall, to be included to be invited into that room where it all happened, where it all went down. And this is part of the song. He sings this, Aaron Burr. He says, no one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens, but no one else is in the room where it happens. I want to be in the room where it happens. Oh, I've got to be in the room where it happens. You know, like Aaron Burr, there are probably a few dozen quote-unquote rooms that you would like to be a part of and just listen to the conversation that people are having. There are so many different rooms and communities and groups of people that we just want to be invited to, that we want to be included in, just so we can listen. You know, today's passage gives us access to the most private conversation, the most exclusive group, the Trinity. So what is the Godhead talking about here? What's the Trinity talking about? Well, this is what Jesus says. The eternal Son says to the Father in the Holy Spirit. He says this, next slide. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And as it continues on, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, what is this conversation about? What is the Trinity talking about? Well, let me give you a little context here to help explain Right before this conversation happens, we see that Jesus' ministry isn't really fruitful. In fact, Jesus has been having really bad results. Jesus is doing everything that he can. He's healing people. He's performing miracles. He's teaching with power and authority. But still, 
people are unrepentant. People are unaccepting of Jesus. Even John the Baptist comes to Jesus questioning, are you really the Messiah? You know, there's this line that Jesus says. He says, you know what? This generation, you, you're like children in a marketplace where you, sing to, where you call out to one another. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. In other words, this generation is an unresponsive generation. You're not responding to the gospel message. Jesus had pretty bad results in his ministry. Now, after facing what seems to be a disappointment, Jesus now turns to God. And what does he say? Well, he doesn't turn to God complaining. He doesn't say, God, why did you send me to these ungrateful people? He doesn't say, God, this wasn't the deal. There isn't a sense of entitlement in Jesus. He doesn't say, do these people even know who I am? No, instead, Jesus rejoices. He rejoices in the Holy Spirit. He rejoices in rejection, and he gives thanks to God. Why? Because according to this divine conversation, this was exactly what the Godhead, what the Trinity had planned, what they had willed. See, according to this divine conversation, we find out that no one can come to Jesus in faith unless God first reveals the truth of Jesus to them. Unless God first turns on the lights, Jesus is saying, we cannot see. Unless God first takes the scale off of our eyes, we will continue to be blind. Unless God first reveals himself, unless God first shows himself to us, faith is impossible. Jesus, what he is saying is this, simply put, faith is something that is first received. It's a gift. It's a response to revelation. God must first show himself to us for us to know, to believe, to respond, and come in faith. You know, um, when I was young, the neighborhood that I grew up in uh, for my entire childhood had uh, frequent power outages and water contamination issues. The reason why uh, my neighborhood had these issues was because the neighborhood had its own power plant and it had its own sewage plant. And it was a small plant, but because of you know the management of it, or we're not sure, but often we would lose power, and often our water would become contaminated. And there would be times where we would just turn on the faucet, and the water literally would come out just brown. You know, we called it Brooklyn iced tea for fun, but you know when I think about it, it's just it was really really bad. And you know there were times where we would lose uh, electricity. And we would just sit in just pitch darkness. You know, I, I know sometimes, you know, our neighborhoods, we would lose electricity. But imagine an entire neighborhood of like, you know, tens of thousands of people just losing electricity for like, you know, a, a radius of like two miles. It's just pitch black. 
And you know, when, when you're sitting there in, 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 in just pitch black darkness, I, I know there are all this, but in just like this pitch black darkness, you actually become confused. Your eyes are open, you're awake, but you start to get confused. You start to think, are my eyes even open? <laughs> that, that, that wasn't a joke. <laughs> but you start to think like, what is going on? Am I seeing things? Even in the confines of my own home, I'm completely disabled. I have no idea what is right in front of me. I can't walk without my hands to the wall. The same apartment that I've walked a million steps in, without lights, I was completely crippled. I remember on this one occasion, my sister, when it became dark, she dropped a ceramic bowl and it shattered. And of course, in attempting to avoid this while she was walking around, she actually stepped on a large piece and she cut herself really badly. And I remember we were just the four of us at that time, but in the dark, we had absolutely no idea what to do. We can smell the blood. We can feel the blood dripping. We can hear the whimpers of my sister. And we can feel her shaking, trembling. But we couldn't see anything. And we couldn't do anything. Where's the peroxide? Where are the bandages? How can we get to them without also stepping on glass? We were in complete darkness. And we had no idea what to do. We were afraid to even turn on the water, thinking that it might have been contaminated as well. We were afraid that that would get into um, her, her body. It was the four of us. We were completely powerless in aiding even just a small wound. And I remember when the lights just all of a sudden turned on. In an instant, when the lights turned on, doubt dissipated, fear fled, confusion was gone in an instant. We knew exactly where we were and what to do. This is how Jesus describes faith. This is how the triune God designed faith. See, today's passage tells us that faith is a response to God turning on the lights. God turns on the lights, and all of a sudden we can see He reveals the Son to us, and the Son reveals the Father to us, and finally we can see and we acknowledge the truth. Finally we can see that we are a sinner, and apart from Jesus, we have no hope in this world or the next. For those of you who are a Christian, I don't know how you all came to faith, but I can guarantee it was a light switch moment. All of a sudden, the lights turned on and you can see. It wasn't new information. It wasn't necessarily new persuasions that you've heard. It wasn't a new kind of sin or a new kind of brokenness that you've experienced, but all of a sudden, the lights turn on and bam, you can see, Jesus reveals himself. He reveals the Father. And in that instant, you confess, I once was blind, but now I see. That's faith. I know in the moment when you come to faith, you might think that, you know, faith is something that I have to do. 
Faith is a confession that I have to make. It's a mental ascent that I have to climb, a commitment that I have to make. But when you look back now, look back at the moment you confessed Christ, you'll see that that moment when you came to Jesus in faith was first a gift from God. You know, one analogy that Jesus uses to explain this coming to faith is that of birth. In John 3, Jesus says, you know, when you come to faith, it's like birth, right? where the one who is born has absolutely no control, no power over when or how or who that individual is born to. But who is it? Who is it that's exerting the most energy when it comes to giving birth? It's not the father, it's the mother, right? The mother, the parents are actually exerting enormous energy to give birth and life to this child. That's what Jesus says. It's like birth. Where the one coming to faith is brought to life by the work of of Jesus, his work on the cross of forgiving our sins, his work in his resurrection in giving us new life, and Jesus revealing these things to you. A moment of coming to faith is like birth. You're given life by your parents. You have no control over it. I remember when I was young, we, um, you know, for, for birthdays, you know, we would always expect these gifts. We would plan gifts out, you know, six months out saying, you know what, when my birthday comes around, you know, mom and dad, can you buy me this? My dad always used to say this line. He says, you know what, son, for your birthday, you should give a present to your mother because she gave you birth on this day. I hated that line and I never really understood it. You know, as a young child, I always thought, Mom and Dad, I'm the gift. You should give me a gift because of all the joy that I've been giving to you. You know, I didn't really realize that until, I didn't realize what my dad was saying until, you know, recently. Of course, you have to become a parent to understand what your parents are saying sometimes. Uh, but that's what I, I realized, oh, yeah. You know, when a child is born, for, you know, that child, you know, he's given life. By his parents, by her parents. And Jesus uses this analogy to explain exactly what faith is. Faith is first and foremost a gift that God gives, that the Son gives. He reveals himself. He reveals the Father. You know, as you think about this passage, you know, this is a divine conversation again. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are having this amazing conversation. And you wonder, like, what are they talking about? Are they talking about quantum physics? Are they talking about how they created the world? Are they talking about some mystery that's so beyond, you know, our, our comprehension? What would they talk about? You know what they're talking about? They're talking about the plan of salvation, of how God brings you and I to new birth, to faith. They talk about how the Trinity, the Godhead, gives faith to his people. Let me just talk about uh, three points of application um, as we conclude this 
talk, this message. So faith is a gift. What are just some ways to apply this? Well, first, I think faith as a gift leads us to worship. Faith as a gift leads us to worship. I know when it comes to application, uh, we want something that's a little bit more concrete, right? A little more practical. Sometimes Christians walk away saying, okay, so what does this mean for me in my life right now? How can I apply this? Well, worship. In the Bible, there is actually no application point that's more important, more practical than worship. This idea, this truth of faith being a gift ought to lead us to worship. You know, Revelation, the last book in the Bible, uh, tells us about everything that's going on in heaven and what we'll do in heaven. And Revelation tells us about this song that the angels are singing and this song that we'll actually be joining in with. And the song begins in this way. The song that the angels are singing over and over again and the song that we're going to sing over and over again when we get to heaven, the first line is this, Salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God. Faith being a gift leads us first to worship. I mean, just see the emotions that Jesus is filled with as he talks about faith as a gift. He's rejoicing. He gives thanks. He's filled with joy at what they have done Together, as the Father, the Son, and the Trinity come together, they're rejoicing. So shall we. The second point of application is this. A faith as a gift humbles us. It humbles us. If faith is something that is first received, not acted on, then it eliminates any potential for boasting. See, faith is a gift But the way in which this gift is dispensed, there seems to be some sort of pattern or rhyme or reason behind it. If you look at what Jesus says, he says this, God, you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you have revealed them to who? To little children. It seems that God graciously gives this gift of faith to those who are like little children, to the humble, to the innocent, to the simple, to the wide-eyed, but to those who are wise, to those who are learned, to those with much understanding, to those who think that they're so intelligent, God hides these things. He does not give this gift. The great reformer, actually the one who started the Reformation, Martin Luther, the last sermon he delivered was in 1546. And the passage that he spoke from was actually this passage, Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. He speaks from this passage, and in the last sermon that he ever gave, the man who started the Reformation, he warns the people against arrogance. He warns the people against being so wise, so qualified, so haughty that they don't accept God's gift. This is what Luther says in his sermon. 
speaking of the wise and the learned, the things that we ought to avoid, speaking against arrogance and boastfulness, Luther says this, they, meaning these people, the arrogant, they have the idea that God could not reign if he did not have wise and understanding people to help them. Everything that God does, they must improve so that there is no poorer, no more insignificant, no more despised disciple on earth than God. He must be everyone's pupil. Everybody wants to be his teacher and preceptor. The first day of seminary, um, the first class that I've ever had in seminary, this was back in September 2006, I walk into a class and it's taught by this legendary professor, a professor who taught at the school for about 50 years. I mean, he was royalty at the school. He taught there for about 50 years. He married the daughter of one of the founding faculty members. That's how you become royalty, I guess. But I mean, he was, he was the biggest professor um, in, in that school. And I walk into the first day of class. It was a class filled about about 100 people, an auditorium about maybe twice the size of this place, uh, filled with young, eager people, filled with people wanting to learn, filled with people who had you know great backgrounds and good education. And the professor sits us down and he says, I want you to open up to Matthew 11. And we all open up to Matthew 11. And he reads this and he says, what does this mean? And he exhorts us there. A hundred young and old seminarians wanting to learn, wanting to gain more knowledge. He says this, you must be humble. If you want to learn more about the Lord, the more you grow in arrogance in your knowledge the more the Lord will hide from you. You must be like little children. It reminded us that we came to faith through revelation. We came to faith as a, by receiving a gift. We must continue to be like little children. If we understand that faith is a gift, we must continue in humility before him. Faith as a gift humbles us. The third and final point is this uh, application point. Faith as a gift, um, it relieves us. It relieves us. Most Christians, I think, wrestle with the thought, will I ever lose my faith? Will I ever fall away from the faith? For a Christian to not have any of these thoughts, I think, is suspect. I would question you if you never thought about, will I ever lose my faith? I think it's natural to have these thoughts. I think it's ordinary to have these thoughts. Will I fall away from the faith? But this truth that faith is a gift, this truth that faith is something that is first given to us, relieves us when we have these thoughts, will I fall away? Because if faith is a gift, if faith is something that is first given to us, not something that we have created or we have worked up, if faith is a gift, then it relieves us to know that it is something that we cannot lose on our own. 
Faith as is a gift that assures us in our most vulnerable moments, in our most darkest moments, in our most sinful moments, that he has given it to us as a gift. And he promises that he will work this out till completion, that he will perfect this. Faith as a gift relieves us. It reminds us that the genesis of this this conviction and commitment that we have in Christ was nothing that we had worked up. Its genesis was not in our own thoughts and efforts, but it was God who had so graciously revealed himself to us. And friends, church, brothers and sisters, this God has committed himself to us and will bring it to us completion. Would you join me in prayer at this time?